Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. Let's begin in prayer as we begin the message this morning. Our Father and our God, as we come to this time in, in your word, my prayer this morning is that you would fill each of our homes, each of our hearts with your spirit, that as these words were written centuries ago, they would speak uh, as clearly today as they have ever spoken. And God, as we look at the life of Jesus today and his entrance into the world, I pray for that same entrance again, uh, that as Jesus comes uh, to meet us in all of our situations, that you would teach us to be his hands and feet in the world, to encounter the people around us who need the abundant life and need hope and salvation in Jesus. So I pray this morning, God, you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Several months ago, and it seems like a lot longer than that, our church leadership shared uh, the vision God has been laying on our hearts over the past few years. Greenville Oaks exists to inspire people to follow Jesus. And we talked about why we believe that's so important. Because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. And during that, we shared with you values and we shared with you a, a path, a discipleship pathway that we'll share more about again in the coming months as we want to remind ourselves of what we're about as we will begin re-entry at some point and continue into that discipleship process. But the truth is, when people come in our doors, our hope is that when people exit our doors for the first time after visiting, that people are not talking about the worship that they experienced. They're not talking about the sermon that was preached. We want them to be talking about the Jesus that they encountered and met here. We want them to be amazed by Jesus. We want to make him famous. Amen? There are so many people who live in Collin County who don't know Jesus. And just because we may know a lot of Christians doesn't mean that that's true for everyone in our county. And they're not looking for Jesus. They wouldn't say that, the people who don't know Jesus. They don't know the good news he brought us yet. Right now they're not following Jesus. And when Jesus entered the world, the same thing was true. People weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for hope. Some were looking for a Messiah. But almost no one was expecting Jesus of Nazareth. So what were they expecting? Well, their expectations were formed in the midst of the exile. The Jewish people years before, like I talked about last Sunday, went into the exile in Babylon and Assyria. They left Jerusalem and the place that God had given them their kingdom and their land. The exile was one of the greatest disruptions in the story of God's people. The people of God finally had a king on their throne but because of their worship of foreign gods, their idolatry, and their disobeying of God's command, they ended up in exile as God's punishment. Like a parent who, who, who puts a child in a timeout. The Babylonian army came and put Israel in a timeout. 
They put them in their country. They took the best and brightest of the Israelites and they put them to work in their empire. And far from home, these people longed for the day they would be able to re-enter Jerusalem and re-enter a time where they would be in charge and in control again. And so this time of time out in exile was a disruption. They wondered where God was. There was no temple like there had been in Jerusalem. They never wanted to go back into exile ever again. Eventually, God allowed his people to go back to Jerusalem. And as every new generation does, they promised themselves they wouldn't be like the generation before them, making the same mistakes that had been made before. They were going to be the generation that finally got things right. And there would be different strategies about how different groups within those first century uh, Jews would seek to make sure they never went back into exile. In fact, there were four main groups in the first century, uh, Jewish groups, that existed in the, Jesus, in the world that Jesus entered into in the first century A.D. There were the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Herodians or Sadducees, they're referred to as different things, and then the fourth group, the Essenes. These groups differed in significant ways. Each group had a different explanation for why they were in exile. And they also each had a strategy for how they would avoid going back into exile. And those explanations and strategies created expectations for the Messiah that God promised would be sent into the world, who would save them from their current oppressors, the Romans. So I want to talk about those four groups for a minute. The first of those groups I want to talk about is the the Zealots. The Zealots were the violent revolutionaries of their day. And their explanation for why they had gone into exile years before, it was because after King David, they had lost the valiant leader and the powerful army that David had accumulated to defeat their enemies. They lost their nerve, the people of Israel did, according to the Zealots. And so their strategy was this. If we boldly lead a revolution, God will defeat every enemy that we encounter, including the Romans, just as he did in the days of our great leader, King David. And that expectation and strategy led to an expectation about the Messiah who would come. The Messiah, they assumed, would be a violent revolutionary who would overthrow the Romans. You may remember that scene where there's an opportunity for Pilate to either release Jesus or Barabbas. You remember what the crowd yelled? They said, we want Barabbas because Barabbas was a violent revolutionary. The zealots would have backed somebody like him. There was also a second group, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the the, the rule followers of their day. You can think of modern groups like this. The explanation that the Pharisees had for why the people of God had gone into exile was biblical. We were sinners who didn't keep the law carefully enough. And so their strategy was, look, if we would repent and we would stop our complacent acceptance of evil and faithfully observe every command God had laid out, God will send us a heroic liberator. So in the first century, it's not just the commands of the Torah that the people of God are following. The Pharisees set up fence laws around those laws so that when it came to keeping the Sabbath and making it holy, They had all these laws about how one would go about doing that that made sure that you would never break the rule because if we broke the rules and the law again, we might end up in exile. And so you can imagine the expectation they had of a Messiah. The Messiah would come uh, from from maybe a, a Pharisaic tribe. Maybe it would be a rabbi, somebody that would teach people how to keep the laws perfectly. The Messiah would be a rule follower. 
The third group were the Herodians and the Sadducees. These were the political realists of their day. So their explanation of why this all had happened is they said the Zealots and the Pharisees, they're, they're hopelessly naive. They think that they can keep a certain way of life and God will send them a Messiah. But their belief, the Herodians and the Sadducees, was no one can beat the Romans militarily. And rule-abiding Jews can't take down the Romans just by following the law. So their strategy was, if you can't beat them, join them. The Herodians and Sadducees were the political realists of their days. And so they accommodated and learned to coexist with the Romans. They sought uh, positions of power and they sought to align with Herod and the leaders of that day, hoping that they would maybe push this agenda that they had as, for the Jewish people. And so their expectations of the Messiah is that the Messiah would come from halls of power. This would be somebody who would be powerful, who could get along with the politics of the day. The fourth group of Jews in that time were the Essenes. And the Essenes were like the first century Amish people, right? They're the ones who escaped the city. They went out into the wilderness. And their explanation of the exile was this. The city will rot your soul. So stop trying to fix the world. Let's escape the world. If we get away from the city, then we can't make all the mistakes we made before. So their strategy was that they did that. They left the city. They set up desert communities away from the heart of the empire. They figured they could keep pure if they stayed away from what was impure. And so their expectation of a Messiah was the Messiah will be an outsider who sets himself apart from others. So you can see how the way we see the world, the way we see the problems, our strategies shape our expectations of who leaders should be, who the Messiah should be in this case. I think the same is true today. You can parallel each of those groups with modern groups today that are hoping the kingdom of God will come through a particular route. Some say follow the rules. Do it right. Some are going to be violent revolutionaries just going to say let's start this whole thing over. Let's take charge. Others are going to go into the halls of power and work beside those in power, accommodate as needed, and others will just walk away from the whole thing. And no one knew to look for Jesus of Nazareth in the first century, because Jesus fit none of their expectations. The zealots expected a violent leader of a rebellion, and that wasn't Jesus. In fact, do you remember what Jesus says to his disciples after one of them uses a sword to cut off uh, the ear of Jesus' arresting officer? Uh, let's read this together in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, second half and following. Listen to this. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of uh, Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? You see in that story that Jesus is refuting this violent takeover to say, Peter, put your sword away. This is not how my kingdom comes. So the Pharisees were a different group that expected a Messiah who would be a rule follower. And that wasn't exactly Jesus in the way they expected either. Over and over again, Jesus upset the Pharisees by his failure to follow Sabbath laws and other eating laws and other laws about staying away from those who were sinners around him. And it makes, it makes sense that the Pharisees were so upset. They believed that a failure to follow the laws could put them back in exile. So Jesus cannot be from God 
if Jesus doesn't follow the law as we expect him to do? You remember one of those stories where Jesus actually responds to their accusations about his failure to keep the Sabbath? The story comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 7 through 14. Listen to this response that Jesus has in this scene. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from place from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm not here to make sure I follow all the rules as you would expect me to, Pharisees. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's okay to heal. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And they go and they try to plot to kill him. Because he stands in the way of their going into exile. The fact that they may disobey again and God would do it all over again. The Herodians and Sadducees are the third group. We talked about them earlier. They expected a powerful political Messiah, and that wasn't Jesus either. Another scene that that reminds me of where Jesus kind of renounces that, you remember what Jesus says to the group of Herodians who come out to catch him teaching people to obey Caesar. They ask him a question trying to catch him. Let me pick up in Mark chapter 12, verse 14 and following. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back, what, back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. You see Jesus saying, I'm not playing your game trying to catch me. Look, Caesar's got some things, give them back to him, but make sure you give to God what is God's. Jesus doesn't play their game. Ultimately, the fourth group, the Essenes, expected a, an outsider who would escape the, the city, and that wasn't Jesus either. Now, Jesus certainly spent time in the wilderness. Do you remember when he starts his ministry? He spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted by uh, the devil. The Holy Spirit attends to him at the end of that scene. And uh, ultimately, he dies a death that's outside of the city, bearing the disgrace he bore. Hebrews talks about being killed outside the city walls of Jerusalem. But so much of Jesus' city wasn't running away from the heart of life in the community. In fact, he heads toward Jerusalem in the second half of the Gospels. He moves back toward the place he knew would be the place of his death if he continued forward with his message. And he loves the city. In fact, he weeps for Jerusalem and longs for her to be faithful. In this scene, this is in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Listen to how he talks about the city itself, in ways the Essenes never would. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, uh, sent to you, 
How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus weeps over the city. And ultimately, he meets his demise in the city because he's not willing to walk away like the Essenes. You can see in each of these stories that I've read, these quotes, that Jesus doesn't line up with the expectations of these four Jewish groups that expect a Messiah that looks just like them so that they would never have to go into exile again. So do you see how their expectations cause them to be blinded to the actual Messiah when Jesus shows up? See, the exile shaped the people's expectations about who would be coming as the Messiah. And no one expected Jesus of Nazareth. So I wonder this. In the midst of this disruption that we're in, all the disruptions that we're in, here's the question I have for you. How might your expectations of God prevent you from seeing the way God is showing up in your life right now? Let me say that again. How might your expectations of God prevent you from seeing the way God is showing up in your life right now? For the first century Jews, they had expectations that were shaped coming into the disruption they faced. And they were waiting on a Messiah, but they couldn't see the Messiah because the Messiah was different from the expectations they had. And I wonder in this season, how is that true for you? How do you expect for God to show up? And how might you be missing the hand of God in this moment of disruption in your life? The people of God desperately wanted things to go back to normal in those days. They wanted Jerusalem back as their possession. They wanted a king back on the throne. They wanted the Romans out. And they wanted God to restore things back to the way they once were. They wanted things to go back to normal. Sound familiar? And yet, Jesus is bringing a kingdom that is anything but normal. Jesus is bringing a reign that is anything but business as usual. Jesus is bringing a new normal. Jesus is inviting them into something better than the old Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem that he's telling them all about. He's announcing the arrival of something brand new, something they couldn't imagine, something they'd never seen before. And the people don't recognize Jesus. They miss him. And that's the disruption of that moment in the first century is, yes, they're back in the land, and yes, they have expectations, but so many people miss Jesus because of the expectations they bring about what God would look like. In Genesis 28, there's a guy named Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The grandson of Abraham himself that we talked about the first week of the series. And Jacob is in a difficult situation. He's on the run. He's stolen his brother Esau's blessings. And Esau's running after him. Esau's plotting to kill Jacob when the story I'm about to read happens. Jacob is in a storm of his own making. He's in a disruption in his life. He's not sure what tomorrow holds. And in the midst of the storm, Jacob falls asleep one night, and he has a dream. You remember this dream? He sees this ladder. There's angels that are ascending and descending on this ladder, on these stairs. And, and, and God appears in his dream and tells Jacob that God is going to extend his blessing through Jacob's descendants. And something really interesting is said in that passage that I think applies to maybe where we are today and maybe where the first century Jews were when Jesus came. Listen to what Jacob says in Genesis chapter 28 verse 16 at the end of that dream. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, 
he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Surely the Lord was in this place. And I was not aware of it. You see, Jacob was on the run. He was afraid of his brother. He didn't know what the future held. But in the midst of that moment, he lays his head down to sleep. He has this vision and he realizes that even in the thick of this moment, even in the midst of disruption, that God is present even in this. And all that makes me wonder, where is God in the midst of this disruption in your life? Where is it where you're not even aware of it, but when you wake up, if you have eyes to see, you realize that God's fingerprints are all over the situation. That God's moving and trying to do something. He's moving His church to do things. He's moving your family to try to do things. He's moving you personally with a calling on your life. He's clarifying that. If you only have eyes to see and if you can throw out the expectations of what you thought that the summer of 2020 would look like, where is God in the midst of this disruption? Where is Jesus standing in plain sight? And all the while, you're missing him. You know, our expectations often blind us to the work of God in the world. But I want to assure you of this. God is here and he's at work even in this season. God is here in the midst of COVID-19. God is here in the midst of your furlough or your lost job. God is here in the midst of this never-ending summer. God is here in the midst of your family drama. God is here in the midst of whatever failure may be running over and over again through your mind. God is here in the midst of it all. And I hope you will not allow your expectations of how God will show up to miss God who is here and present the whole time, even if you're not aware of it. God is here for you to trust, inviting you to rest, inviting you to dream again, inviting you to reimagine, inviting you to be filled with hope. And my prayer as we close this morning is that you would see the Jesus that's been there that you've just been missing, that you would wake up from what seems like a nightmare maybe in your life right now. And realize that even while you're on the run, God has not been far any step of the way. Let's pray as we close this morning. God, you are good, we proclaim, even when we can't see your hand. You are here and you are present even when it seems like you are most absent. That is the uh, claim of Scripture over and over again. As your people feel like you're absent, they cry out, how long, O Lord? They lift up prayers and they feel like their prayers aren't heard. For 400 years they're in slavery and they wonder, is God even around? For 400 years they're in exile and they wonder, will He ever show up? And then you show up and our expectations prevent us from seeing the incredible way you do reveal yourself. So my prayer right now, God, for each one of us is that you would reveal yourself. That whatever dream we may be in right now, that we would awaken to see your presence. That we would awaken to feel the hope that you want to pour into our lives. The calling that you've put in on us. God, maybe this season is the very season you're calling us out in new ways, in fresh ways. You're calling us back to your heart. God, I pray we would not miss it in this season. 
but we would be attuned to see it more clearly than ever before. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.